Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. So David, since you're on Skype, we're going to start with you. The first brand, David, that made an imprint on you. Huffy Bikes. It was the first uh, thing I saved up and earned to buy on layaway at Montgomery Ward. And uh, I had a paper route and I had to work very hard in the winter to uh, earn that brand in my life. So Christina, the same question. First brand that made an imprint on you. When I was very small, uh, two years old, in the stroller, uh, my mom was there trying to pick up something she needed. We were running late to something and I saw a Cabbage Patch doll on the low shelf. They were smart. They stacked them right at at infant eye level. Um, And I just grabbed it when she wasn't looking and put it on my lap. And she didn't notice and starts to leave the store. And the security guard says, (laughs) ma'am, have you paid for that doll? And she was so mortified. She just immediately bought me the doll. No questions asked. And later, of course, is like, you can't do that. But I got my doll. So Cabbage Patch was a a very important part of my childhood. Could have led to a career in prison (laughs) or something, right? I know. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today is a unique episode of the CMO Podcast. We have two guests, Christina Wallace of Bionic and David Kidder, the co-founder of Bionic. Bionic is a startup, but it's a startup with scale. It has about 60 employees, and their mission in life is to help legacy companies install what they call a growth operating system to help large companies build the capability and muscle and incentives to become growth engines. They work with the likes of City. P&G, and AB InBev, and they've had real results. So today, we will unpack what it takes for a CMO to build a growth culture. Here's my conversation with Christina and David. This is a really, really important podcast because our theme today is how CMOs can be better growth leaders. And growth is on the top of the agenda of every CEO and CMO in the world. And few are happy with their results. So enter Christina and David. So Christina, welcome to the CMO Podcast. You're in the studio with me today. I am. And David's on Skype from Calgary, Canada, about to do some serious hiking. (laughs) Yes, excited. Thank you for having us, Jim. It's always an honor and very grateful for your friendship and uh, your support. We're going to have fun today. So listen, I met these two probably four years ago when I was doing my research for a book I was writing called Mm -hmm. Unleash the Innovators, which was about big companies and startups and how startups help big companies find their mojo. And as I was researching that book, Beth Comstock, who was then the CMO of GE, said to me, you've got to talk to Christina and David. (laughs) For any book about big companies and growth and startups, 
you've got to talk to those too. So I called David, Christina. They said, sure, come on into the office at Bionic. And I went in and had the most fabulous interview. Their insights were remarkable, and they're a major part of the book I wrote. So we're going to have these two with us today for about 40 or 45 minutes, and we're going to talk about CMOs and growth. But before we do that, I want you to meet both of these, <laughs> and I'm going to ask them some funny, provocative questions, and that's how we're going to introduce the two of them. So David, since you're on Skype, we're going to start with you. You're a graduate of the Rochester Institute of Technology. What was your favorite course there? Well, I largely studied industrial design. Um, I was also a resident advisor and a lacrosse player, but in resident uh, advisor training, they taught you how to uh, facilitate listening, which I'm, Christina can point out, I'm not the best listener in the world, <laughs> but I did learn how to, to uh, lead a room in my uh, early years at school. So probably the training that went into being a resident advisor with the chaos of a, of a, of a, of a college dorm was really good training for me. How many companies have you founded or co-founded? Uh, this would be my fourth. Three are venture-backed uh, services and software companies. And then Bionic is our my first true bootstrap company uh, over the last six years. And now we're at uh, nearly 60 people and growing and, and having a lot of fun uh, scaling this business. So which of the companies had the best outcome? Take Bionic out of this because it's still a work in progress. Uh, it depends on how you think about that. I, I think... Uh, my second company, SmartRay, was raised a little bit of money, but had a, a pretty uh, good exit, just a little under $50 million. Um, so on a cap table basis, that was a good return. Um, and then my last company, Clickable, which raised a lot of money, didn't have a great exit, but the, but the learning what really changed my life. And so I always have this line called, success is a bad educator. <laughs> and it was through the sort of that journey and that brokenness in a way that you, you learn something about yourself, but you learn more about how to grow. And... Um, uh, um, it really has led us to today to who Bionic is and uh, who we're becoming. So what was the clickable lesson, if you can say in a few words? Well, I, you know, I, I surrounded myself with some of the best investors in the world, literally the best investors in the world. And I, yet I still um, made a really, uh, what turned out to be a very uh, poor decision uh, in sort of splitting the company's focus uh, in two, really. And we did that because of a strategic partnership with a large corporation uh, that bought a really expensive consulting uh, uh, piece of advice and then uh, used it uh, to um, give us a lot of money to ultimately uh, build uh, a solution for them. And that sort of took us away from the core customer problem that we were solving. And, you know, and after, you know, four or five years and 180 employees and scaling up, we ended up actually building two companies at once. And for startups, uh, it's hard enough to do one, let alone two. So, uh, splitting that company in half and uh, returning it to its focus was challenging. And, but out of it, honestly, came uh, the Startup Playbook, which is where we began Bionic, uh, in really learning how to better our lives and the lenses and the mindset that lead to extraordinary outcomes. So uh, why did you, um, we're going to talk Bionic. Why did you start your latest company, Bionic? Why? Well, it started with a simple question. It came from Beth Comstock on stage at uh, Boca, their annual conference now seven years ago. Uh, she and I were having breakfast, which we do almost every year at TED for the last you know, 13 years. And uh, she learned about the Startup Playbook and she said, you know, we need this at GE. And um, uh, at the time, I, I, had, I was sort of in the last uh, several years of Clickable. And so when we sold the company, I took time off. She asked me to come back and keynote a conference for her. And I sat in a panel 
on stage with 700 other executives, which I had no idea how big this uh, this forum was. <laughs> and uh, at the end of this talk, uh, she asked, you know, what are your big questions as an outsider to GE? And so I, uh, without any preparation, I yelled down to Jeff Immelt, the CEO at the time, and said, Jeff, how many $50 million companies did you launch last year? And I said, I bet the answer is zero. And uh, how is it possible with 300,000 employees and and uh, 90 billion to bank, which was literally the number, um, how come that doesn't happen all the time? And so of course it was completely like deadly silent and Beth cracks the ice and says, you know, tell us how you really feel. And so that was the end of my thought leadership career as I walked off stage <laughs> and to a golf clap. And Jeff, you know, to his credit, he came back and stayed and he said, you're gonna come fix this. And he went back on stage and he said, that's the most important question in 37 years of, of starting, you know, this conference with Jack Welch. And, wrote two months later that he was going to, you know, lead, uh, become a transformation, um, which we learned a lot through uh, based on the Lean Startup and the Start Playbook. So that was sort of the beginning of Bionic was understanding that um, large organizations, it transcends employee skill. It's really about leadership and teams working together to create growth. So what is your purpose in life? Well, my purpose is largely what Bionics is, which is to ignite growth revolutions and um, in myself and, and others and companies. And as I've been doing this work uh, the last six years, I've learned that it's really not about money and startups. So that's an outcome of it, that um, it's really about the interior life of leaders uh, and quite frankly, ourselves. We are, uh, as a result of how we think and the limitations we put in our life, uh, we intentionally or unintentionally sometimes put the ceiling and the limit to our level of comfort and permission uh, for growth. And um, that happens in our day-to-day -day life, in our relationships and in our work, but ultimately translates into what we allow a company or life to become. And so I find that the mindset and the work that we do at Bionic is moving through the permissions to create um, unlimited outcomes and develop a mindset of abundance that allows people to create and discover and to um, and really solve honestly, the grand challenges of their time, you know, the big customer needs in the world that they have a proprietary gift to, uh, to solve. We have a zinger, I have a zinger for you, yeah. which is what, what do you, you have a lot of gifts, but what do you think is your proprietary gift? It truly, you're one of one unfair advantage in the world. I think it's, uh, I think it's curiosity combined with humility. I don't assume I have the answers. And I, I like to ask questions and I like to, uh, I like to learn. I like to go down interesting places. So, and I, people are not, uh, even when I was in the big job at PNG, I was accessible and I didn't, I set high standards, but I didn't terrify people. Hmm. I, that's amazing. You can't learn without humility. Yeah, that's right. It's absolute truth. That's right. It's where it all begins. Yep. Great answer. And true about you. That is truly your proprietary gift. Well, thank you for asking. Okay, Christina, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, that was a warm-up. Thank you, David. <laughs> we got to know David a bit. So you studied math and theater at mm -hmm. Emory University. So what was the craziest theater course or experience? <laughs> uh, I mean... Is certainly taking uh, Shakespeare and learning how to um, 
you know, curtsy, wearing the corsets and the skirts and everything from Elizabethan era, uh, learning how to fight in those costumes and getting college credit for it was pretty fantastic. Pretty good gig. Um, but I think equally so, Emory was just uh, a wonderful place that was very into interdisciplinary work. So I did my honors thesis in theater, but my professor, my advisors, um, encouraged me to find ways to connect math and theater in my thesis. So I ended up directing a production of Proof, David Auburn's Proof, um, which is about uh, a a math professor at the University of Chicago and his daughter um, and genius and mental illness and sort of all of the wow. complexity of those relationships. So it was nice to be able to connect the dots. So do you have a favorite math equation? I mean, I like a lot of math. Um, phi is my favorite irrational number. Phi, phi, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, I have the Fibonacci sequence. I have a, a spiral tattoo. Um, there's a lot of interest there. But uh, it's hard to pick a favorite equation. Oh, I guess Euler's, Euler's identity is pretty great. Okay. So you also have a Harvard MBA. Who was your favorite professor there? Oh, I can't name names, Jim. That's not fair. Um, how about course? <laughs> So Clay Christensen obviously yeah, had a huge think. impact on um, on my education, on my career. Uh, every student who's had him would say that. Yeah. Um, he teaches this fabulous class called Building and Sustaining a Successful Enterprise, BSSE. And it's all about taking the theory of disruption and, and the work that he's done post that you know dissertation of his uh, for the last 20 years and really applying it to a set of lenses, a, a set of theories that you can um, look at when you're trying to identify, is this a sustaining innovation? Is this a disruptive innovation? How is the market around us going to react to these changing forces? And I think um, obviously it was, you know, it was meaningful to me 10 years ago. And then when I met Bionic, I met David and, um, and got to see how they were implementing some of this work. It was the first time that I think it clicked between the theory the academic understanding of disruption and how it actually looks um, in the real world. So David's the co-founder of Bionic, and Christina, you're the VP of Growth. I'm mm -hmm. going to take a little uh, detour here. Describe to me Bionic in a in a phrase or two. So I it's say it's a company, right? It's this a company. Helps, it is helps companies grow. It Describe is. it. So I say we're a collective of entrepreneurs and veteran investors who work shoulder to shoulder with the Fortune 500 to discover and build new businesses. Um, we are all veterans of having done this in real life, um, having to identify a customer problem, run the experiments to understand what that business opportunity looks like and get it up on its feet. Um, and we love getting our hands dirty. We are not consultants. We're not going to give you a PowerPoint and say, this is what we think you should do, and then walk away. Um, we want to work side by side and and sort of learn and teach by doing. So I think that's part of the big appeal of the work that David, we David, anything to add to that? I just think, you know, I'd, I'd say that Bionic is addressing, you know, what the, this, there's a new era of leadership of public CEOs that just transcends their capability to operate. They must create. They must, do, they must be able to have the ability to manage discovery and uh, growth in the same way they can manage scale and efficiency. And so that ambidextrous leadership skills, the new demand and Bionic is really is bringing that, that new to big, that zero to $100 million job back to both capability, but also leadership. And so our core business, that growth operating system, the idea that venture capital and entrepreneurship are literally forms of management in the same way Clay Christensen has taught 
some of the best leaders in the world to administrate by degree, the big to bigger, which is important, you have to have the mindset mechanics of entrepreneurship and venture capital as a day-to-day requisite to create growth. And our job, in a way, is, a, is to create, make it permanent, make it a permanent capability um, and ultimately legacy of those, those leaderships who are going into this new era and leading. Mm-hmm. So, Christina, back to you for the finish mm-hmm. of the introduction. <laughs> so you're also a podcast host like me, and yours is called The Limit Does Not Exist. So That's right. very theatrical title. <laughs> so what's your advice to me as a host? Oh, man. So I don't know if this is good advice or bad advice, but um, The Limit Does Not Exist is uh, a show I have a co-host, and we are constantly interviewing people who we find absolutely fascinating. And apparently we say wow a lot. Um, And some of our our listeners, they don't like that. that. They've chimed in on iTunes. So So who's been your coolest coolest guest? (laughs) Who's been your coolest guest? Oh, my goodness. Johnny Sun is probably one of my favorite guests. He uh, was in his PhD program at MIT at the Media Lab at the time. He has an undergraduate degree um, in, uh, I think, engineering. He did architecture. Um, He was looking at online spaces, but he's most famous on the internet, on Twitter, um, as Jomney Sun. Uh, He just did a TED Talk about how he's built uh, online comedy through illustration and through uh, saying out loud some of the loneliness he feels. It it sounds so strange on the surface, but he just has built this whole uh, world for himself to the point where he now lives in LA and is a screenwriter working on BoJack Horseman and uh, a few other things. So you said so just, wow a lot in that interview. <laughs> right? How can you not say <laughs> wow to that? So you've worked at BCG, mm-hmm. Quincy Apparel, a company that you started, mm-hmm. the Metropolitan Opera, and now Bionic. What's the common thread there? So the common thread, I started my career in the arts, came out of theater. I was a classically trained musician before that and thought the arts world was going to be where I'd make my mark. Um, It's what I cared most about as a creator and as a consumer. But when I got to some of these big organizations in the arts world, I realized that if there's no growth at that organization, I was not going to get personal growth opportunities, that if the organization itself is shrinking or is in an uncertain marketplace, um, there isn't an opportunity for fast learning. And at 22, who doesn't want to have fast learning? So that's when I went off to business school. I didn't know anything about business, but I figured uh, I should probably learn. (laughs) And um, in the middle of business school, the financial crisis happened. And in the midst of that, Harvard's career services said startups. (laughs) If there are no jobs, make your own. Um, And that's when entrepreneurship really bloomed at Harvard. Before that, it was really Stanford's cup of tea. Um, But coming out of the uh, 2008 to 2010 cohort was really the blooming of entrepreneurship there. Um, And that's what led me into the startup world. I started my first company, Quincy, in the fashion space. Um, I went into professional redevelopment with Startup Institute. I founded a startup inside a larger organization organization, Bridge Up STEM at the American Museum of Natural History, um, and got to see kind of all these different flavors of what is it like to build something from the ground up. And that's when I met David. I was really struggling, um, to be honest, building something new inside a big organization. Um, I had more money, more resources than I needed, but I didn't have the, the, the culture and the permission to do things differently um, in and just kept running into a lot of the 
I think David likes to call them the the bystanders who jump out of the football stands to kill the play, right? The stakeless stakeholders. Um, and met David and asked for advice on what I should do. And instead, he offered me a job to come help him build Bionic. And you've written a book together, New to Big, mm-hmm. which kind of captures the learning from Bionic six years and beyond that. So what was the greatest challenge for you two writing that book together? Um, getting time, time. <laughs> to squeeze it in. Yeah, I think reflective time. Writing a book is a full-time yeah, endeavor, I think, as anyone who's who's attempted it would know. Doing it while running a company and uh, and building something that is not, you know, s- uh, s- stable on its own, it's still a startup uh, in itself, um, is certainly a challenge. But I think it was an incredible opportunity for us as a company to um, use the structure of the book to really force all of the learning that had been going on at this exponential mm-hmm. pace um, through uh, kind of one you know, yeah. sheet of paper, one filter to say, what have we learned and, and how can we make sure that that's oh, all a, captured in one place? It's very easy to read, very illuminating, and very helpful book. Thank you. Honestly, I recommend it. So David and Christina, let's talk growth and CMOs. This is the CMO podcast. More Fortune 500 companies are declining in sales than growing. So it's hard. Growth is hard in big companies. We just had (laughs) Michelle Peluso in the studio recording with IBM, and they're through a multi-year transformation. They've really embraced agile teams and purpose. And, and I'm hopeful, but it's hard. I worked at Procter & Gamble for many years. It's hard. Mm-hmm. So why is it so hard? You do this every day. You work with a range of companies and all sorts of industries. So why is it so hard? You know, I think the, the irony is, is that I, I don't know if CEOs of the Fortune 500 are paid to discover new growth. I think the incentive is, is to basically c- capture all of the existing total addressable marketplace that's available to them. So right from, I mean, right from the incentive at the top, uh, all the way down, there's this challenge, which is, why do we care about these new little things? Um, it doesn't move the needle. And if you reframe that around sort of a discovery mindset, if I have a total addressable marketplace that's actually dying, and I'm blind to where that customer behavior and need is going, and I haven't been incentivized to build the discovery that new to big, that engine that's intended to discover new solutions to the problems where customers are leading me from to go to, I have a huge liability. Not only in my own operating system as a company, but candidly in the incentives of the organization to go discover it, value it, and capture it. So I think you have, this is as much about capability and skill, but it is ultimately about uh, incentive from the top. And I, I'm going to say top, I mean, from the board down um, is really where it's broken. And so uh, we, we, we focus on that machine and we can talk about that in detail, but I think fundamentally at the core, that's the problem. Yeah, I, I would add to that, that one of the big insights when I first met David and Bionic that I realized had been missing when I tried to build something new inside a bigger organization is that in the startup world, you have entrepreneurs and you have investors. It's two sides of this ecosystem. And what's important about that is that the investors who are funding and making the connections and helping cultivate you know, these startups through the stages of growth, they understand what they're looking for at each of those stages. They don't expect a little baby startup to look like a fully you know, fledged out business. So when you're looking at why 
big companies find it so hard to grow, many times you see activities going on inside the company, hackathons, idea generators, um, startup days, uh, even Skunk Works teams. Mm -hmm. So you, they recognize the entrepreneur skill side that has to go on, but they're not seeing the other side of the ecosystem that the leadership has to um, understand, evaluate, fund, cultivate like venture investors do. And that's the leadership skill that David was just talking about, that that understanding and and really knowing the new to big piece that is is truly missing. So you talked uh, capabilities, you talked incentives, you talked rewards from the board down. So in your experience, what has to change? I understand those. What else has to change within organizations, marketing organizations, other organizations and legacy companies to build this capability, as you said earlier in this podcast, in a sustainable way? I know we, I, we keep kind of subtly, if not explicitly, keep using the word permission mm -hmm. a lot. And you've probably heard Beth talk about that a lot as well in her, her, her writing. But I, I, and I kind of inferred this as we opened about this, the sort of like the ability to ignite a growth revolution, a company really begins in the interior life of the leader. What they're actually willing to do what the ceiling, so to speak, the limitations <laughs> that they put on the company on what's possible is actually explicitly felt inside the company. So like, for example, you know, we, we can build solutions to new problems, new products to customer problems, but it has to be in the context of how we currently make money. It has to be currently take advantage of our existing assets. It has to be use our supply chain. It has to use our regulatory framework. Whatever it is, is, is ultimately bound which uh, by beliefs about who we currently are today that can't be relieved. And as a result of the competitiveness and the speed, the velocity that's happening outside, they end up being blind to the change. And so the internal rate of velocity of learning is asymmetrical to the rate of change outside. And if you don't include the permission, a startup's greatest, one of its greatest advantages is that it can solve the problem in any way it wants, right? It can use any technology or any model or any, any piece of math, and it has the velocity. That velocity and permission is, at its core, the unfair advantage that a small company has, and quite frankly, even at scale, that day one mindset that, that Jeff Bezos talks about, that refounding job, which is what one we're doing and bringing these day two companies back to day one, that skill of velocity and permission at the top is, is ultimately what drives the change. So, uh, Christina, you talk about this concept of total addressable market, and I take it you don't like that concept. <laughs> so you have a different concept that you think is much better for a growth mindset. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So we talk about total addressable problems. Um, total addressable market is not a bad metric, but it's a metric that reflects what is today, right? It reflects what the market looks like today and how big it is, how much you can capture. And ultimately, it's about it, for you to grow in your total addressable market, the assumption is you're taking from a competitor. It's a zero-sum mm -hmm. game. When you're looking for growth opportunities, the question is, what is the customer problem or need that is not being addressed that you can go and solve in a radically new way? And when you're sizing up the total addressable problem, it often 
is much bigger than the existing market. Because when you're looking at new opportunities, new customer problems today, they're small, they're insignificant, like David said. They're they're often uh, customers on the fringes, the extreme segments, who are looking for a hack or a solution, a workaround to a problem that they're not currently being you know met in the market. But if you follow that trail, and you see that if you address their need, then there's a larger group of customers that would benefit from this and an even larger group that would be willing to pay for it, you start to see that the problem could be very large. So the example we use in the book to explain this is that when Uber first started, the total you know, taxi industry in San Francisco was a certain size. I forget the exact numbers. Um, but at the time, you know, uh, a number of investors were saying they were so overvalued, even if they get 10% of that market, they can't possibly be worth what they're worth today. And it turns out the total addressable problem of people needing a car to pick them up and take them somewhere was much bigger than the existing size of the taxi industry. And so their valuation is uh, very much justified based on the size of the problem they're able to solve. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, Visit cmo.deloitte.com. So you two work with CEOs and you work with CMOs mm-hmm. of very big, impressive companies. <laughs> how, how do you feel? Let's start with the CMO. This is the CMO podcast. How does their work need to change? If, if, if you would describe to me the ideal CMO to lead growth for a company today, how is that different from what a lot of CMOs do day to day? Well, I would say that first their title needs to change. <laughs> mm-hmm. To uh, we'll change the podcast too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, it, it really is. It's from marketing, which is inside out, to growth. I think, which is outside in. So the chief chief marketing officer, I think, it's a new future title is chief growth officer, which is about discovery. Um, obviously, we are the skill lives in communicating our current solutions to problems. But it has to, but in the spirit of growth, it has to expand to capture the discovery. It's largely why we don't use the word like innovation, and we don't really often use the word transformation a lot because there's so much brain damage around those words. The, the, the superpower that marketers or CMOs have is urgency, right? There's urgency around um, a marketing. There's urgency around um, you know the relationship we have with customers, and I think. If that urgency can expand to discovery and that importance of making sure that we're always, you know, discovering and capturing, I think it really changes the context of, of the, their, the, the purpose of that role. And, and candidly, I mean, you're seeing a lot of the CMOs, at least at the enterprise cross P&L roles, kind of go away because the role of the brand is becoming uh, uh, is, is sort of like disconnected from the value of the market the company's creating in the world. So. Um, my, my fantasy is that that will be the new title of marketers <laughs> and that this skill will be central to every large organization's capability driven out of that office. I think one of the other superpowers that marketers have, right, is storytelling. 
And, you know, typically we see the marketer's job as telling the story to the consumer about the product or service that they're trying to sell them. And I think you can flip that skill on its head and use marketing and that function. You know, we see often the the growth OS um, when it's co-owned by marketing and R&D. Tell me for our listeners, what is the growth OS? The growth operating system is really the term we've given to the how, the structure of how to put together leadership thinking like venture investors people on the ground running experiments like entrepreneurs do and kind of all the connective tissue in between the support functions of the enterprise that allows them to learn and build at the speed of startups, right? That's sort of the the new to big uh, machine, if you will, inside a company. When that is kind of co-owned as a program by marketing, and R&D. You have that commercial partnership with the technology or the, the kind of enabling innovation partnership. Um, when they have that, that ability to go from the outside in to discover the customer problems and really build that empathy with the customers about what is that unmet need and then use that storytelling skill to actually tell the story into the company to say, how can we better meet this need for our customers rather than how can we push onto them the products that we've already decided to build? Um, If they can use that empathy building to really get to the, the insight of what's the unmet need and how can we meet it 10x better, um, that I think changes the power of marketers to really bring the customer into the product development process, which is not really how a lot of these organizations are set up right now. Yeah. So you've worked with just generally how many companies at Bionic over the last six years? Just a rough idea. Mm. I think the total count is 14. It sounds about right. Uh, it's actually, it's, it's very few. I mean, we are all in as co-founders that drive this, so not many is the answer. Yeah, but when you go in, it's deep. And you impact the company's culture. You work for mm-hmm. the CEO, and you don't—it's you—you don't come in and out. You're in there to right. change the way they do business. I mean, we work with these companies for three or four years, yeah. right? It's a—it's a. So, what did you learn from these 14 companies? What, what's your <laughs> what's your learning to others if they want to embark upon generating a, a growth culture? Okay, this is going to be a lot. So <laughs> it's okay. Here's, here's two here's two sides of it. One is, I think the leadership starts to understand that the genetics of the company are failing the company, right? They're saying there's really three buckets of major change that have to happen, cultural and the leadership and work. So inside the culture is this sort of success theater that permeates large organizations where, you know, they get make five big bets a year and every one of those five big bets has a huge planning process around it. And then that idea is born and then the idea never dies because uh, they literally can't sell, unsell a dream, right? You sell a dream, you can't unsell. All of a sudden, you know, I was trying to make my really bad idea work at scale and I I birthed this, we like to refer to them as zombies, ideas that just like suck up all the oxygen and walk around dead because people can't literally tell the truth. And so a lot of times after our keynotes, a CEO will come up to us and, be, and say, I don't think my organization tells me the truth, of which we respond, and it doesn't because <laughs> of how it's led. And what we're saying is, is that you're never going to get people to tell you the truth unless you can lower the cost of failure. And so that share-based planning model 
as if you can plan to discover as an iron, creates these huge like cultures that uh, the boundaries and permissions are so restrictive, you can't tell the truth, you can't discover it. The second thing is, is under leadership is just candidly, the addiction of being right, right? When they get to the top, that wisdom accrues, very valuable in the big to bigger, you need that wisdom, but they turn around in that new to big when they're discovering growth and they're trying to find growth, and they say, well, let me tell you about what I think about your idea, right? And so if you do that for a number of years, how often do you think an original idea is going to come through an organization that the CEO is going to disagree with? The, the teams will literally reinforce the bias of the organization. And the scariest thing is, is that the whole organization will take on these beliefs. It'll become this like stakeless stakeholder, you know, um, you know, antibodies to things that are literally not commercially true, remain true, and new truths aren't getting in. Lastly is just the work, as, as Christine is pointing out, it becomes... R&D focused or inside out. We need more yield from our investments. And, and that just sort of creates that same cycle of pressure to make things that literally are not true work. And, uh, and then we start, you know, it's technology in search of a problem and, and, and finding customer channels as opposed to the natural state of growth, which just happens to the outside in. So the change, the second part of this, the change is just, you have to fundamentally organize yourself, which is what our model does, to make fundamental changes around inside out to outside in breaking the addiction to being right, expiring data sets, one year in the past, three years in the future, focusing on behavior of customers, not what they say, which is where the TAM happens, that shift from TAM to TAP, we can do research, but in experimentation, we can see what customers do. And the thing that works in growth is that behaviors don't lie. And so the last parts of this is around like just productive failure, allowing us to get through cheap failure, good enough answers for speed as opposed to stupidly expensive answers that we try where we where we reinforce biases and you know there's a whole bunch of other aspects of this but those core ones are the big shift that happens in this growth OS model. I would say the other thing that is is just notable if you look across the companies we've worked with, we've worked with heavy industrials, energy, financial services, food, CPG, fashion, um, the gamut. And what's fascinating is this works across all of them. So this isn't industry specific. It really is an operating model, an operating system um, that really gets to the, the core question. You know, we, we talk to new partners, they say, well, I'm not sure I have the talent for this. Um, we say, you probably do. You probably have entrepreneurs hiding in the wings that are tinkering, that have side hustles, and you don't know about it because that's not encouraged and it's not incentivized here, but you have the talent. Um, you have ideas. There are plenty of growth ideas inside your organization. You have to figure out how to find them, but they're there. And you have the money to do this. You have zombie projects, the walking dead that everyone knows are not going anywhere, that if you would just recap them, take that money back, redirect it, you've got the money. What you have is a how problem, right? And it's just having the permission, as David said, the organizing framework to allow the teams, allow the learning to bubble up. And that's really what the growth operating system does. It's not we're not coming in with the answers. Mm -hmm. We're just sure. teaching a system. Yeah. So I know it's tricky to talk about a specific client. Mm. So I don't know if you can go here or not. But is there anyone you can talk about over the last six years who you think has wrestled with this, is making progress, and is learning and is inspiring for you and maybe for others? Is there anything you can share about that, a specific case? Mm. 
I mean, there's, there's, I, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll kind of divide and conquer here. I, I'll, I'll talk about um, ZX Ventures and InBev, and I'll, I'd also like to talk a little bit about PNG. I mean, without breaking their confidences, but I think their story is becoming more and more public. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, but in the case of ZX with Pedro Arab. And for our listeners, Z, ZX Ventures is the venture arm of AB InBev, the mm-hmm. very, very large beer and beverage company. That's right. Huge company. And, and candidly, you know, they know they're going through their own stages of disruption. But what I appreciate about their journey is they knew the core was really hard to change. And we're getting there, right? We're now working on that effort. So they went outside of it and they built a new model who ultimately, I honestly think will be one of the great success stories in innovation in that the I word that we'll look back and study on. And they've deployed this at scale. And it's, um, well, I can't talk about the, 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 the public numbers. They're quite extraordinary relative to the, the amount they've spent over the last four years to invest in what are, you know, you know 50 plus significant bets. But they've reframed them around the needs and not the marketplace. They really lived out this OS. And I think the results as they pour out of this are going to be quite extraordinary. And I will tell one, one, one other part about this is that... Um, when you think about absolute returns and investing in the future, about 60 to 70% of all returns come from about 6 to 7% of capital deployed. What means that you make all of your money from your fewest number of bets. So if I make 100 bets, right, six of them are going to pay for everything and all my returns. Everything else is sort of going to go to zero or get my money back. And if you look at, like, why did we invest in those six out of 100, your instinct is, as a manager, is, well, just do more of those. <laughs> and the answer is you can't because your failure teaches you those. But when you look at why we made those decisions, they have two qualities. One is a um, discovered secret about the future, about timing, really, and your own giftedness. And number two is, is um, non-consensus, which means you make all of your money with ideas that have the highest disagreement rate. So conversely, if you have consensus, you're in big trouble. So one of the things I love about ZX is that they've made incredible non-consensus decisions around the future that have allowed them to create offense. This has resulted in a handful of acquisitions you've seen from Babe, which was a which is a drink that's outside of their own core. Um, Canvas, uh, the unlocking of their protein-based protein-based products that they have usually was a afterthought and often considered a waste. They've restored and uh, almost a 50x return on that, on the value of that material and now being used as a protein supplement. So that, those examples of where they've unlocked proprietary gifts. In the case of P&G, you know, we, we started with them now three years ago, about a year before they had a public activist investor. And you know, on the one hand, I could just say, well, look at the stock price, right? Uh, you were there for many years. And We've had very long conversations about this, you and I, uh, Jim, and, um, and the company has incredible talent, incredible assets. As they've gotten leaner and faster, the mindset at the top has shifted, and they've moved our model to almost all the P&Ls. But I do remember this one moment, uh, which I think was uh, changed everything, was when David Taylor really asked the organization to put new growth on all of everybody's plan. Everyone had an incentive and a request to go after new oxygen, as we refer to it, as a percentage of their work every year. And once they sort of made that a mandate, I think the behavior changed and they had a model to do it. Um, I'll say this last thing, which is all of our partners have some of what we do. They have a lean movement. They have an agile movement, which are very different things, by the way. Um, 
they have a committee who invests. They have a lab. They have accelerators. They have all this stuff. And the problem is not that they have it. It's that it's, it's at various levels of maturity. But more importantly is it's not integrated. There is not a cohesive, consistent machine that's organized with the mindset and the mechanics of venture capitalists, candidly venture the VC side, to make it work as a flywheel. It's done in parts and it's inside the big to big machine and it's at war with the purpose and the incentive of the machine. So they need to create a new one. So that is, I think, the big change both at ZX and as PNG as we see those changes take hold. And for our listeners, Christine, I'll ask you to comment on this in a minute. But for the listeners, we, Pedro Erp, who's the now CMO of AB InBev, was the head of ZX Ventures for several years. And now he has both the marketing function and ventures under him. So, and we had him on the podcast you know, many weeks ago. So very brilliant move on their part. And I'm also very optimistic about their future. Yeah, I, w- I was going to bring up Pedro. He's a fantastic leader. And I think P&G, we see the same thing. Mark Pritchard, their, uh, their head of marketing and brand, I don't remember his exact title. Um, he co-owns this work with Kathy Fish, who's their head of R&D and technology. So I think both of those are great examples where marketing that CMO job really is um, keeping an eye out for what are the customer needs, what are the trends, what are the changing behaviors that we can go and meet right where they are. And I think that's the instinct that has to shift when a brand manager says, you know, millennials aren't buying this product anymore, or um, we're not seeing this channel uh, really grow in the same way it used to. How can we fix that problem? the wrong instinct. Instead, it's saying, okay, if that is a changing behavior, where has the commerce gone to? If millennials aren't buying this, what are they using to solve the problem? And where can we play in that space? Um, That's the shift from a, I'm going to hold on to my mountain of customers versus where are they going and how can I meet them there? Which is much more rewarding work, right? So much much more more interesting, much more fun, much more productive. I, I take I, I get little shivers when David goes on his quarterly calls and he says David Taylor CEO of PNG right yeah, yeah. he'll say we we are taking on the grand challenges of our time and he'll refer to this because what he's describing is that shift from TAM to TAP mm-hmm. that it's moving from linear to portfolio from from existing needs to future needs and and that and that they're on offense they're they're organizing themselves to win that future where the challenges and the problems that customers meet. And Pedro has the same mandate. They, you know, when we first met them, there's, you know, the strategy shifted from, you know, two beverages a day to we're in the enhanced experience business. And that's because they discover that mindset has shifted from the inside out to the outside in. It's not about you. It's not about your margin. It's not your product. It's not about your R&D. It's not building products for customers inside out. It's building with from the ins- with them from the outside in. And we see that fundamentally happening in the internal conversation but ultimately the conversation they're having with their investors and the community at large. So we have thousands of up-and-coming marketers listening to this. We have hundreds of CMOs listening to this, maybe thousands. What's the one thing you'd like them to do when they leave this podcast to begin their evolution to a growth culture or revolution to a growth culture? So, Christina? One of my favorite Um, of our growth leader mindsets, which I think is very applicable for marketers, is the question of how old is your data, right? We say you have to expire your data. If you are relying on insights or research that is more than 12 months old, 
you have to go back out and revalidate it because the world is changing that fast. Um, and equally so, if you're relying on insights that you're seeing second or third hand, you hired some agency, they did a focus group or you did a voice of customer survey, they packaged it up, you're reading their report, you're too far from the insight. It's you very have passive to too, get, right? It's very passive. You have to get out with customers and have these conversations yourself because that's where you not only uncover those insights, but that's where you develop the empathy with them. And that's what we were talking about earlier, bringing that storytelling back in to truly understand why are we solving these problems for them and how can we change their lives if we do this in a meaningfully different way. Super. David? So I, I have two, two ideas. One idea is, listen, we, we deal with very extreme stress in, in large organizations. We, we walk in at the height before they slip, right about to slip into the event horizon to a day three company. <laughs> so we get it. Like we, we, we know what quarter, quarters feel like. But I would just say that like the, the idea that I have to own discovery is not an option. And the reason why it, this, those to, new total wrestle problems are so critical is that when you start working this way, what you learn is this secret. Just because an idea or a solution or problem fails to become a company doesn't mean it's not a solution to a problem in the core. So, so we have discovered at scale hundreds of solutions to extremely difficult problems in retail and in supply chain and you know, into you know, giftedness, all these challenges because they were in building solutions to the problems that are matter to customers of where they're going only to discover the solutions to the problems that they are in today. That's that tension. It's, it's profound because the permissions boundaries to get to the commercial truth fast exist. So that's the first thing is the job of discovery is different than the insights of today. Secondly is, is the question of proprietary gifts. So I, this comes through the start playbook with we have these things called the five lenses, which is really the answer of how do you bet your life? And the five lenses are proprietary gifts, the idea of extreme focus, build painkillers, not vitamins, 10x better, and then ultimately create permanence. But we, that's a longer conversation. But the first one is, will always be the first one, which is why you? What is your unfair advantage to solve a monster new problem or need that's emerging in the world because of an outside force, not because of you, but because it's happening to your customers that you have to figure out how to solve. So when we sit down with the CEO, that's one of the most profound questions. What they're asking is, what do I have that no one in the world has to solve these problems that lead to new market dominance? The marketer, the chief growth officer, has to own discovery and the answer to the question of who, what are our proprietary gifts of the future that we can win today? There are beautiful questions for everything, <laughs> for business, for life, for human beings. They really it's are. Beautiful. I think so. So listen, we have a few minutes left together, so I want to do a lightning round to end. And uh, I'm going to ask each of you, and I want you to ask, answer these together one at a time. Okay. So Christina, how do you stay on top of your game? Oh, man. Twitter. Twitter. Okay. David, how do you stay on top of your game? Uh, my Excel <laughs> dashboard of... Actually, I'll say this. Uh, I, have, I, have a, I have a to-done list. I okay. have a to-do list, but I, I have a to-done list, which I always feel like is actually a better reflection of all the things I have to do every day. What book are you reading now? 
Oh, man. Um, I just picked up Fleischman's in Trouble, Taffy Broder, Brodesser Ackner. It's a novel, which I never get to read novels oh, anymore, but it's the novel of the summer. Got it. Go to the beach. David. Yeah. My favorite last, I've just finished it for a second time, is How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Fabulous. What's the one brand you cannot live without? Dave, let's start with you. I, I'm starting to become a huge Vans fan, honestly. I, I love Vans. and uh, I get it. I get it. Christina? <laughs> um, Margot Ballet Flats. I oh, live nice. in them. Yeah. Okay. All right. What do you read or listen to every day? So I do the New York Times crossword every morning as a way to, uh, to start my day, get my, yeah. my brain working. Mm-hmm. I'm a crazy audible person. I listen to 40 to 50 books a year on 2x speed <laughs> on autopilot. So that's my go-to commute. What's amazing is he does that while lifting weights because the <laughs> Tesla drives He lifts itself. weights very fast. David 2X. is someone yes. who does like five things all at the same time. What's one company you would love to work with? Oh, man. Apple, actually. Apple? I, I think that I, we've written about this publicly, but I, I would like to challenge Apple. I would have to agree to that. Okay. What's your favorite ritual or practice at Bionic? Um, I love every Monday we have our Connect and Collaborate, which is our all hands meeting. It doesn't matter if you're in the office, you're on the road, you call in and it's our one chance to get everyone on the same page and make sure we all know what we're learning, what we need help on, and people can raise their hand and solve a problem even if it's not a project they're on. David? I would say we have this thing called props, which we do at our Bionic Boondoggle, our annual offsite, where everyone has a little bag and everyone writes anonymously a thing they observed about the person that they did, uh, that they admired that year. And we pick the top three and we read that to that person in their props bag and it really rewrites their heart. It's a really special thing around the things that we see in each other that they can't see themselves. Mm. That's, that's, that's sweet. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Gratitude, right? Mm-hmm. An observation. Yep. Behavior. All the things you teach other companies. Okay. What's the series you're watching now? One that you really love. Oh, I just finished Fleabag season oh, yeah, two I'm about, and I'm, I'm about to start so that. sad there isn't season three. Okay. All right. <laughs> I just finished Stranger Things. Oh. Uh, my, my friend Cara Brona's in it. It's, a, it's just crazy. Love it. Do you have a favorite pastime or hobby, Christina? Uh, I mean, podcasting is sort of my Podcast. hobby. Crossword puzzles. It's, crossword puzzles. Yeah. yeah. David? Uh, lacrosse. I am a, <laughs> my, just my favorite side hustle. I have three sons who play and I coach. I, I, every time I get the turf, I just, I can't, could not be happier with my, uh, feet at least. Okay. Last question. Who would you like to see in the CMO podcast? Ooh. Oh, that's so tough, dude. Um, David, you have to go first. I have to think on this one. Um, I, I don't know if she has this the CMO title, but Jody uh, from uh, General Mills is quite an extraordinary leader. She um, she just she is brazen and a big thinker, and uh, but I think she's probably not the CMO title. She's, she's not. Okay. She's head of R and D. We have a broad brief. <laughs> okay, Christina, you had time to think. Um, I have. So the chief brand officer, uh, I think that's her title at the wing. Um, I think The Wing has been doing, do you know The Wing? It's a a women's uh, social club and they're expanding into so many smart things. Um, I just think they have identified a real customer problem and then are understanding all of the adjacencies that they can solve for them. So most recently, um, adding uh, a, taking everything they've learned about designing interior design for women's bodies and turning that into a spinoff design company which is brilliant. Great ideas. Hey, you two. 
You've been very generous with your time, your energy, your counsel, your observations. Uh, thank you. Our listeners are going to love this. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That was my conversation with David and Christina. What I loved about this one was the creativity of it. These are two remarkable human beings with lots of interests. And the other thing I loved was their passion for helping large legacy companies install a growth operating system and build the muscle to grow again. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.